Welcome to Broadway World Something Like It Pop Podcast. I am Matt Timonini, Broadway World Senior TV and Film Critic. And as always, I am joined by the brains of our operation, Broadway World TV's Los Angeles Bureau Chief, and our resident ethereal hippie spirit, Jennifer McHugh. Jen, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good, good. You can follow Jen on Twitter at EponineQ, that's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q, and you can follow me at BWWMatt, that's B-W-W-M-A-T-T, and you can read us both across various Broadway World sites. Not only can you find episodes of Something Like It Pop on Broadway World, but you can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher, so please go to one or both of those apps and subscribe so you can get every new episode of Something Like It Pop as soon as it is available. Now, Jen, you've lived in Los Angeles for, for a number of years now, correct? That is correct. How, how long has it been? 98. Oh, wow. So, okay, so you've, other than your time in the Peace Corps, you have lived in L.A. since 98, so that's almost, that's 18 years. Yes, that is correct. Okay, so despite living there for almost two decades, I don't think you would be confused with the typical Angelino. Is that correct? Are you? Is that safe to say? I mean, I have too many Met shirts to be a, an Angelino. Okay, so imagine my surprise when earlier <laughs> this week I found out that one night a week you do something that I think fits in to the rather bizarre world of Los Angeles life. Tell everyone what bizarre thing you did this past Wednesday night and you do on a regular basis. I do it monthly, not weekly. Okay, sorry. But I floated in a sensory deprivation tank. What What does that mean? <laughs> uh, basically, you go into a tank filled with about 12 inches of highly saturated salt water and you float it's kind of like this the same sensation in the dead sea where you have its weightlessness uh the lights are out it's completely black and it is silent you have earplugs in and you float for an hour okay is this a a an entertainment type thing or is this some is there health reasons or is it just like mind body and spirit activating as one to create a more heightened personal experience um, all of the above. Okay. It's supposed to promote mindfulness, which is very hippie, and I'm not ashamed of it. Okay. And uh, also, it, it helps with blood pressure, which I have a problem with. Shocking. You have blood pressure <laughs> problems. Shocking. <laughs> and it's a good way to, uh, you know, just kind of reboot every once in a while. You just shut out the outside world. There's no – it's sensory deprivation. There's nothing. There's nothing. And it's like you're floating in outer space, and it's wonderful. How long does it take you once everything goes dark and everything's quiet for you to fall asleep? Um, you, you don't fall asleep. Some people do. I uh, don't. Yeah, I would imagine I'd be out in like a minute <laughs> and a half. It takes about 10 minutes for me to shut my brain down. And then uh, it depends, you know, it depends on the, the week. The first time I went, I, I shut it down in maybe five, 10 minutes. This week, it took me more like 20 all right, well, I'm glad it works for you, and it sounds totally groovy, dude. It's totally groovy, and it's very trendy right now. You can Google it. I highly recommend it. You can Google it. All right, awesome. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Looking for fun and feeling groovy. Okay. 
Uh, over the past few weeks, television dramas have looked decidedly more like the 1990s with premieres of two shows that take us back to the golden age of Sega Genesis and CNC Music Factory. We've talked about both of these shows before to kind of preview their, their premieres. However, now that they are they are on the air, I want to spend just a little bit of time, but we don't need to get too far into them. But, Jen, you previewed how good you thought American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson was. Now that the first episode is aired, that's all I've seen. I've just seen the first episode. You've seen the first five. Uh, let's get some more into detail. What is it about this series that makes it so much more compelling than the normal Ryan Murphy fare? Well, I think... I mean, I remember it very clearly because I'm way older than you. We've discussed that before. Yep, let's keep talking about it. I remember the freeway chase because it interrupted the season finale of 90210, and I was infuriated. So getting to look at it now from a dramatic perspective, and I'm under no delusion that it's not dramatized, but it's just really interesting 20 years later to revisit it as someone in my 40s as opposed to someone in my 20s, how I'm viewing it and the whole procedure and the justice system and everything. My biggest takeaway is that I just think that the casting is brilliant. (laughs) David Schwimmer is a revelation as Robert Kardashian. There are people who haven't really been focused on yet, like Johnny Cochran, but Courtney B. Vance is amazing as Johnny Cochran. Courtney B. Vance is amazing in everything he does, and it's cool that he's going to get a lot of of pub out of this one. Yeah, and I think you and I had discussed um, the casting of Selma Blair and yeah. Connie Britton yeah. as Kris Jenner and Faye Resnick. I, I've and, only seen that first episode, and they're they're in it just for like a minute in the funeral of Nicole Brown Simpson, but they were so cool to see those two in those roles. Do, do we see more of them as the as the episodes unravel? Well, I mean, I don't. I don't know what what is considered spoilers because this nothing. Is it's history. a it's true. So yeah, Resnick writes a tell-all book. And so you're going to see a lot more of her Good. and Connie Britton. I mean, I know you and I share a deep rooted love of Friday night lights, but she is just so good as this horrible, horrible, wretched person. Yes. The casting is amazing. But the thing to me that I think raises this above just a salacious true crime kind of thing is how they frame this first episode. There are two things very early in this pilot premiere episode that I think they do that is that is pretty brilliant. The first is the, the episode opens with actual news reels from the Rodney King beating and the subsequent LA riots. I think giving that racial background to this story is really important, and it comes even more into perspective when uh, Courtney B. Vance, as we talked about, is Johnny Cochran and Chris Darden, who I don't know that actor's name off the top of my head, they talk about a case in which a black woman is shot by the police and nothing is going to happen to the police officer. So to put that racial context into what was going on back in the 90s, and then also to tie it into what's going on now when there was so much discussion in our society about the police use of, of deadly force is really impactful as this story that we all think we know so well unfolds. The other thing that I think was really, really smart is the first time we see OJ, he's having a conversation with the limo driver, and what they're talking about is celebrity. Both the limo driver talking about the first his, his first time driving a celebrity, and OJ the first time he's met a celebrity, celebrity and how much those experiences impact those people. To me, I think it's obvious that this story is about celebrity 
how we treat celebrities, how the legal system treats celebrities, uh, how the people in their inner circles treat celebrities. So when you have these two really interesting societal viewpoints on this story, I think it makes for something more, not just serious, but more important than just if you'd said, hey, Ryan Murphy's doing a TV show about OJ, this is going to be fun, and we're going to cast half the cast of Glee, and the other half of the cast is going to be from American Horror Story. It's going to be really fun, and someone's going to show up in a leather suit sometime. That's kind of what I thought when I heard this from Ryan Murphy. But when I watched this first episode, and those are the two things that open up the episode, it gave me a lot more confidence in the story that was going to be told. That's a good point. I think either episode four or episode five is entitled the race card. And it, it figures very prominently in the trial. I don't know if you remember the specifics, but it is going to figure in more prominently. And that's a great way to frame it, to set up. This is exactly what this is going to be about. You know it, we know it. And it gave him some credibility right from the get go. I looked up the name of court, the guy that plays Christopher Darden. It's Sterling K Brown. I don't know him at all. But he's excellent as Christopher Darden. The casting is great from the top to the bottom. I mentioned, uh, you know, I spotted Paget Brewster in there and everybody. It's it's really cool. That first episode is so well made. I'm really looking forward to diving in. You mean Jordana Brewster? What did I say? Paget Brewsters. Are they related? Yes. Yeah, well, Good, uh, I don't know if question. I should, I don't know if I should trust you because you once told me that Christian Slater and Helen Slater were brother and sister and they are not related at all. But. Before the internet, that's what was true. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of things that happened before the internet, another drama is taking us back to the 90s with a six-episode return of the Fo- of Fox's The X-Files. Now, I was 12 when this show debuted, so I never really got into it. Jen, as we've already established, you were a little older and you've been a fan from the beginning, and I know you're watching now that it's returned. What have these first three new episodes, for the first time in over a decade, how have they been for you as an X-Files fan? They have been great. Um, I I saw a little hate on the internet about it, and I, I'm confused by it because it's pretty vintage X-Files. I mean, it is about aliens, it is about real-life monsters, and it is Fox Mulder joking around and Scully putting up with his antics. Like, I don't know how much more X-Files you want, but as far as I'm concerned, the first three have been wonderful, and I know there's only three left, which is depressing, but I know the whole cast is interested in making more. So um, I'm a big fan of the 1990s, no secrets. So any more of these reboots and uh, 25 years later sequels, Twin Peaks, I am all on board for. Well, yeah, and and I heard some of the – it's hard to escape some of the the hate about things, even if you're not watching the show. What I'd heard was the first two episodes were not – great but apparently everybody thought that the third episode which i guess was the first real monster of the week episode really redeemed everything did you feel like there was a big difference between the first two and the third episode uh yeah i do because the first two was kind of like a hey we're back and there's aliens and there's people who have been abducted and here's what we're gonna do and then the third episode shows up and it's literally just a good old-fashioned monster story not to mention guest starring Kumail Nanjiani, who was one of my favorite stand-ups from Silicon Valley, and also Reese Darby. Those were the two guest stars. So, I mean, you're you're winning before the episode even starts. Yeah, you, you retweet Kumail quite a bit. He's one of the best stand-ups that is out there today. I don't know how you become a stand-up comedian in your third language. And just he's just wonderful. Highly recommend his stand-up specials. Here is the goal. 
back with the bass, pajamas live in effect, and I don't waste time on the mic with a dope rhyme. Jump to the rhythm, jump, jump to the rhythm, jump, and I'm here to combine. All right, for this next segment, we're going to talk about a show that's not rebooting or fictionalizing something from a previous decade, but it is very much built and feels like it's TV from a decade past. Uh, on Saturday, January 30th, comedian and actor Louis C.K. sent an email out to his website's mailing list that said nothing more than, go here to watch it, we hope you like it. There was nothing else. There was no info, there was no description, you didn't know what it was, it could have been spam and given everybody a virus. But if you went, what was on the other side of that link was a 66-minute episode of Horace and Pete. The second episode was released in a similar way today, uh, it was a longer email where Louis said, basically, this isn't a comedy. We don't know what this is, but we hope you like it. Jen and I have both watched the first episode. I have not watched the second episode. And since Jen, we're recording at 3.30 Pacific time, I assume you just rolled out of bed and turned on your computer to talk to me. That is correct. So we're going to just be talking about this first episode, but I'm really, really excited to get a chance to see this second one. It should be noted that each episode costs $5 on Louis C.K.'s site. And once you purchase it, you get kind of a funny little message that says, now that you've bought it, you can do whatever you want with it. And he said, watch it, stream it, put it on a DVD. I don't care. Um, and it looks like, based on the way the website's set up, it looks like there's going to be four episodes. But since Louis C.K. is doing, like, no press whatsoever for the show – we're not really sure, so it could end up being ongoing, but it looks right now like it's going to be four. The The show stars Louie, is written and directed by him. Also stars Steve Buscemi and Alan Alda, features Jessica Lange, Edie Falco, Rebecca Hall, A.D. Bryant, and my personal favorite, Stephen Wright. I don't want to give away too much because while I think the setup is important for this show, in my mind the execution is what makes Horace and Pete really special. But that being said, uh, it's set in a family-owned bar in Brooklyn, New York, called Horace and Pete's, that's run by Horace, which is Louie, and his brother, Pete, Steve Buscemi, but they come from a long line of Horace and Pete's who've run this bar for 100 years, and that now might be in jeopardy. Jen, like we said, this is not a comedy. There are a number of, of funny moments, I thought, in that first episode, but it definitely feels more like a televised version of a modern Eugene O'Neill play than anything else. I mean, there's no commercials. Um, there's no laugh track. There's a little buzz to the mics all the time. There's an intermission halfway through. The, the camera cuts aren't fancy. I was fascinated by this whole thing. It's not perfect. It's not polished. I'm still kind of working out my thoughts and feelings because there's so much in there, but I'm really, really curious as someone who loves Louis C.K., what you thought of this Horace and Pete episode one. I think Louis C.K. is one of the modern-day geniuses of our time. And I think we spoke briefly about it last episode where, uh, regarding baskets, how we can never accuse him yeah. of ripping off other people's ideas. I have no idea what I watched. I don't know. And I don't care because it was fantastic. He, I know you don't watch his show on a regular basis, but it's billed as a comedy, but it's not at all. It's a, a drama with comedic moments. And I think he gets pigeonholed into comedies because he's a comedian, but he's so good at writing drama. And I think he's really underrated as an actor. And when you're on stage or on set with that group of people and you're holding it and running like the show on your own, like he's just, he's so good. And I'm a millennial, not millennial, perennial favorite of um, <laughs> Alan Alda. He's great. My oh, all great. favorite actors and he does not disappoint. But not only that, they're dealing with some like serious topics. <laughs> 
in this 66 minutes, they're talking about politics and racism and traditions versus progression. And it, there was so much in 66 minutes. Mental illness uh, and families and, and divorce. Sexism. And yeah. it was, I still have, I, I agree with you. I have no idea what it was, but I couldn't stop watching it. Yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, and it's, I'll tell you right now, it's 66 minutes, but it feels, because it is so densely packed with content, it feels like a full feature film to me. Like, I would go through, like, when the intermission, because there's actually, like, an intermission card that just says intermission. Like, I felt like, oh, my God, it's over. It's, it's an hour long, and I was only 30 minutes in. It's, it's really condensed with so much stuff, and it's really good and really fascinating. I, I think the second half, after they kind of set up who these characters are and you start to get into what's going on in their lives was really incredible. And I'm so fascinated because it looks cheaply made. You know, the sets don't look all that. I mean, the sets look good, but they look like they're from, you know, a multi-cam sitcom from the late seventies. They don't look like anything fancy you'd see on a show today. It's just, it fascinates me because this, this does look like someone went and made a Tennessee Williams play or Eugene O'Neill play and put it on screen. It's it's bizarre how evocative it is of a different era. It de- and it's interesting that you bring up the 70s because as I was watching it, I was thinking even like the color, like the lighting of it yeah. reminded me of All in the Family or Sanford and Son, you know, from the 70s, just that basic, there was nothing creative about it. It was all about the dialogue and all about the characters. Right, and, and that's what I mean by, like, the mics, there's always, like, a constant hum. It kind of changes depending on the camera they use. There's always a hum to the mics. The the cuts aren't great. It almost looks like they cut it wrong times. I don't know if that was done on purpose or not, or they just didn't care, but it does give you a different feeling that this is not traditional TV. Yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes from here. I love Louie and this new little trend that's happened lately where there's no six months of press countdowns to release dates it's just like oh by the way here you go love it yeah and could anybody else get away with this like i think because louis built his website up to be where he sells his own uh content and sells the content of other artists that he is involved with like he has this mailing list and has a a way he's gonna make twenty dollars from a lot of people to see four hours of a show that I don't know that anyone else can get away with that, and and I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, he's got a really great fan base, and they are loyal to him no matter what he does, and he deserves it because everything he produces is worthwhile. mentioned uh, how excited I was for Grease Live, and I didn't talk a whole lot about it because knowing my co-host as well as I do, I thought there was no chance she would A, watch it, or B, care about it. But I was shocked when I said, hey, I'm going to bring up Grease Live a little bit. She said, okay, I have some thoughts. So I won't get into my review too much. I wrote uh, a review the night of on Broadway World. We'll put a link to it. I also did a segment on This Week on Broadway about it. So if you want to know my in-depth thoughts, you can find them. Basically, was it perfect? No. Was it revolutionary? It's Grease. What do you expect? It's entertaining. But what was fantastic about Grease Live, in my opinion, 
was the execution. The way that Tommy Kale and Alex uh, uh, Radetzky, who was the TV director, and Mark Platt, the executive producer, created this production, in my mind, was revolutionary for what we are used to seeing in live televised musicals. It made all of the NBC live musicals look amateurish, in my, in my opinion. Not because those weren't done well, but this was so much more inventive, so much more creative, so much larger in scope that I think this really changes the game for things moving forward, and I think that's going to be good for everybody involved. There were some good performances. There were some not good performances. Uh, maybe we can get into those if you want, Jen. But to me, the greatest success of what Grease Live was was in the execution, and I think it's going to change the way that we see musicals and theatrical productions on TV for a long time. Um, I would agree with you. The scope of it and the uh, the way it was presented was really impressive. I mean, you get Tommy Kale at- attached right. to it, which was the reason I watched it, because uh, Lin-Manuel was tweeting about it all week. So I have to, you know, be loyal to my Hamilton crew. So I watched it. Um, but I hate I don't like the show Grease. Sure. I the movie Grease was the first movie I ever saw in the movie theaters. <laughs> so I, I do have a, a sentimental sentimentality attachment to it. But I just don't like the show overall. Um, The thing is, (laughs) I just, Julianne Hough, I just, she's, stop pretending she's an actor. Like, she's so good at so many things. And I. Well, hold on. I'm going to stop you there. Is she so good at so many things? Like, I think she's a good dancer. She's a great dancer. Absolutely. World class, incredible. I could watch her dance forever. Is there something else that she's good at? No, maybe not. But. I think she, and I and I don't mean to be rude, but I feel like she brought the whole thing down. It was it was so hard to watch her, and Sandy's a tough character anyway because yeah, and that's she's the thing written poorly. But well, yeah, Sandy is meant to be boring, and so I mean I don't. I, that's one reason why she her performance didn't bother me as much is because the character is supposed to be a stick in the mud. I think on this week in Broadway, I described her her acting style as like a slab of meat. Uh, where there wasn't a whole much going on. She was just kind of there. But I was I was more impressed with her in this than I anticipated being. Maybe because I thought her boringness served the character well. But I didn't dislike her. I, I expected to dislike her. I expected to think she was awful. And I didn't get this feeling that you did. Well, I feel like you're insulting meat, first of all. No, 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 no. Why would not, you think... Not me personally. Meat. A stick oh, of meat. meat. <laughs> yeah. You insult me all the time. Yeah. That's, um, that's what this show's about. But it was just... The the performances weren't great. I love Aaron Teviot. How do you say his name? Teviot? Teviot? Teviot. And I don't think he was that great. Well, I think, and here's where I think you and I are going to differ. I totally agree. I've never been a huge fan of Grease because the message, and, it, and this was all over the internet, is basically the girl has to become a skank to get people to like her. I think that there was a concerted effort by Tommy Kale and, and by Mark Platt and the people who helped do the teleplay to make that not as much what it was. I think it might've been too subtle on Sandy's part and to make Danny a little bit different. I think Aaron Tveit, not uh, some people not reacting to Aaron Tveit is because he was not doing the goofy over the top Travolta isms. I think he was making a much more realistic grounded Danny where he was a nice guy and he was more conflicted in the movie. You've got summer Danny, who is nice and lovey and Sandy falls in love with him. And then you've got ridiculous cheese ball. Welcome back. Cotter Danny, 
which makes no sense. And it's not believable that those two people are the same human being. I think in this, in Grease Live, we see Aaron Tveit's Danny being nice to Eugene from the beginning. And I loved the, how they changed Eugene's character. He was nice to him in the first scene. He was nice to him in the prom scene in the middle, where being you know willing to donate blood to his cause, and then in the middle bringing him involved into Thunder Road. So I think what that actually was was trying to make him more of a full character. And then on the Sandy side, I think they were trying to make her less of somebody who was changing from a goody-goody to bad, naughty Sandy, whatever you want to call her, and being more that she was being controlled by really controlling parents and then she was getting to be more of who she wanted to be at the end were those things done elegantly probably not but i think that was there and i think that's a lot of the issues that people had in the performances is that they were trying to make them different characters than what we knew from the film which in that execution i think that they failed because (laughs) like i said as a lover of the movie i think the movie works because it's it's like a caricature and I love John Travolta in Greece because he's so like loopy and weird. Um, and the fact that he is, he's just trying to be cool and he's trying, he's trying to be something he's not. Yeah. And we, we all know it, but at the end, it's more like he's kind of succumbing to this girl instead of her succumbing to him. And that's me trying to put a spin on what it's really about. <laughs> but I just didn't like the way they did it. And it's just a matter of opinion, but the problem is the, the the identity that it's having is they were trying to get away from what NBC was doing. NBC was doing like a state, like filming a stage musical without an audience was, which was a complete failure yes. because you need the audience. And as soon as they started doing the musical numbers and the audience was there, they came alive and it was so exciting. The finale was phenomenal. It was so exciting but the scenes in between where they're just on a random set, you're like, what, what are we doing? Like, I, it was just very confusing as to what they were trying to do. I, I didn't have that confusion. I thought it was much more cohesive throughout than, than you did, but that's fine to have different opinions. I do want to get some of your thoughts on the supporting characters because there are some people in this that you and I both love. And I think there are some people that maybe we didn't know that kind of popped out because of this show. First off, just what are your thoughts on the ensemble members as a whole or individually, if there's somebody that you want to say did a good job or anything like that? My standout was Cather Donahue. She's a favorite of mine from one of my favorite comedies, You're the Worst, that I would assume you would hate because it's about despicable people. Yeah, don't watch it because of that very reason. But, but she, she, she is, is amazing. Great. And yeah. that's the same character she plays on You're the Worst. Um, but she is... I think she's just adorable. I hope that she gets more well-known, and I think that she was the standout for me. And, again, as a lover of the movie, was thrilled to see Dee Dee Khan and the original Duty in there. Yeah, the um, the scene where... And I thought, other than the new song that they shoehorn in for Frenchie, which didn't sound like the rest of the score and was way too low for Carly Rae Jepsen's range. I thought Carly Rae Jepsen was great as Frenchie and I would have said she would have been the breakout from this, but the scene where she's talking to Vi, who's played by Didi Khan, the original Frenchie from the movie, that was surprisingly emotional for me to see those two together. Like I'm not, I have no real emotional connection to the Grease movie, but to see those two together, that was really kind of special to me. Uh, But I thought, I thought other than that, that, 
misbegotten song. I thought Carly Rae did a great job. I thought Kiki Palmer was great. But for me, the, the standout performance for me was Vanessa Hudgens. And that might be in part because of what she went through, the fact that her father died 24 hours before the production air before the broadcast and to see her come in and turn in a, a really nuanced emotional uh, performance was great I've, I, I'll be honest with you I don't know that I've seen anything that Vanessa Hudgens has ever been in I've never seen High School Musical I didn't see Spring Breakers which I guess she was fantastic in but I thought she was really good I was impressed with how well she sang I was impressed with how well she acted especially because she got just lambasted by the theatrical critics for her Broadway debut in Gigi last year I was really impressed by her. Um, the guy who played uh, Duty Jordan Fisher, who sang Magic Changes, which I think was one of the mo- the best reintegrations of a song as something I've ever seen. Uh, I thought they were, they were great. Anna Gasteyer's great. Uh, you know, Ellie McLemore, who who I love as as Patty Simcox, was great. I thought, you know, I wrote pretty much, my review is pretty much a love letter, knowing that it wasn't perfect, but just being so thrilled by how well they pulled it off. Well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I got chills, they're multiplying, and I'm losing control, cause the power you're supplying, it's electrifying. Alright, we're going to go into some new reviews here of some movies. Uh, I saw a couple movies this week. Jen saw a couple documentaries. Both of these movies that I saw this week were things that we previewed being really excited about. One lived up to the expectations. One was so close to surpassing the expectations before ultimately falling flat. And I'll let Jen talk about her documentaries here in a second. But, I admit that I have a tendency to get caught up in the moment sometimes to be a little overexcited and hyperbolic with my praise. However, 48 hours after seeing uh, a screening of Deadpool, I can still confidently say that it is the best superhero movie I've ever seen. It's easily the funniest uh, superhero movie I've ever seen. And I don't think I ever want to see a superhero movie again that does not feature Deadpool in a prominent role. Ryan Reynolds in this movie is unbelievable. I belly laughed. From the beginning of the credits through the first 30 minutes, literally almost nonstop. And it sounds like I'm exaggerating there, but watch this movie. It is fantastic. It's profane. It's bloody. There are multiple decapitations. There are bullets to the brain and gray matter flying everywhere. It is graphic in terms of sexual talk. It is meta. It breaks the fourth wall. It is everything that a Deadpool comic book is translated to the screen i have talked recently that i'm not necessarily a comic book person but i'm turning into one recently the first comic book i read was deadpool's good bad and the ugly and this is one of the most seamless transitions i've ever seen onto the screen it is amazing the jokes are hilarious the story is great i texted jen afterwards i said i think my text was just in all caps dude deadpool it was unbelievable as soon as it's out what's that Direct quote. Direct quote, yeah. So as soon as it comes out, I'm take, making my brother go with me to see it. I am so over the moon for Deadpool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It opens, well, when this comes out, it'll open this Friday, right? Correct. Other than the fact that it is more violent and more bloody and more profane than a lot of superhero movies, I can't imagine a single thing that anybody can say against it. 
knowing that, I'm sure the critics aren't going to love it as much as I do. But uh, I think it's a, it's an almost perfect movie, which I felt for most of this other movie, Hail Caesar, I saw, I thought it was almost perfectly made. It was almost a perfectly made film by the Coen brothers until I realized that there is no plot to this movie whatsoever. There is nothing cohesive bringing this story into one solid unit. There are unbelievably great performances with of really colorful characters. It's a beautiful uh, world. There have these great scenes from these classic style movies integrated into this show, but nothing happens. The, 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 the plot in the movie that we are sold in the commercials is not the plot of the movie that we see. It is a an all-out bait-and-switch. This movie is not what I expected. It's fantastic. It was delightful in every imaginable way, except for the fact that it's a letdown. It's disappointing because you never get any kind of payoff. There's no, I don't know, there's nothing to it other than the confectionery things that go along with making a, uh, a beautiful, entertaining movie. There's nothing else going on. So as much as I loved the performances, Josh Brolin is great. You know, we talked about Channing Tatum, uh, George Clooney. They're all really, really good, but just nothing happens. So in my review, I said, if, if you like the Coen brothers, if you like this era of, of Hollywood stuff, definitely see it. Just know going in that some of these people that we thought were led to believe that might be big parts have nothing more than cameos and have nothing to do with the main story. And it's not the caper that jen and i thought it was when we previewed it a couple episodes ago well i'm still gonna go see it because yeah you should you should yeah huge Cohen brothers fan and you know channing tatum so i will definitely see it and uh try and leave your opinions out of the movie theater but yeah because like uh, i said it's it's so well made like it had potential to be i mean it had potential to be a best picture contender and just drop the ball well, and maybe they realize that. That's why it's being released in February. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to agree, and we speculated about that when we previewed it in the last episode. <laughs> All right, you saw a couple documentaries that uh, that you thought were worth talking about. I did. I've been hacking away at the uh, Oscar nominations, and I watched two more documentaries, What Happened to Miss Simone and Cartel Land. Both of them are available on Netflix, and I recommend them both. I don't have a lot to say. You know, documentaries are... Rarely, if ever, a laugh riot. But um, what happened, Miss Simone, is a little bit of a biographical uh, take on what happened to Nina Simone. She was very popular and a very uh, prominent singer who was an activist, and then she kind of fell off the face of the earth. And even though they never really answer that question, it's an interesting glimpse into her career and how prominent she was at that time period. And the second one was Cartel Land, which is all about the horrifying Mexican drug cartels and just how, I want to say, unaware we are of how much we're affected by it and where it's not talked about. And when people talk about border control and border security, I think that they're talking about the wrong things. And I'm not going to get into politics or anything, but it's an interesting watch um, if you'd like to be terrified <laughs> because it's way closer to home than we'd all like to admit. You know, anytime you watch a documentary and you glimpse what other people's daily lives are like, sometimes you get a little you know, dose of reality that maybe getting the wrong latte isn't the worst thing that has ever happened to you. So I highly recommend both of them. 
I've seen four of the Oscar-nominated documentaries. I've seen Amy and uh, Winter on Fire, and they're all great. Oscar tends to lean toward the more uplifting stories and and anything about government, so I I don't see Cartel Land winning anything. I feel like it's going to go to Amy. That's just my prediction. But I think Winter on Fire is my favorite so far. And what's that one about? Winter on Fire is about the the revolutionary protests in the Ukraine when the Russian... uh, military tried to take over Ukraine and Kiev and having visited Kiev so many times it just hit really close to home that like oh I used to walk that street right there oh there's that um, shawarma place that I had lunch and it's just covered in blood yeah I love a good shawarma place for lunch <laughs> I know those are big in Florida Epcot oh sure it's a small world after Jen, it's now time for Show and Tell, where you and I show, or since it's a podcast, we make people listen to something that really is interesting to us in this past week or two, and then we tell them why it is so great and why they should love it. So what do you got this week? It's funny, when you first suggested this segment, I was like, oh, how am I going to come up with something every single time? And now I just have this growing list of things <laughs> that I want to talk about. So now it's hard to narrow it down to just one. But... I will say that my recent discovery of this, um, have you watched The Late Late Show with James Corden? Uh, yeah, I don't watch it regularly because it's way past my bedtime, but I have seen it and I do love James Corden. Okay, so in this day and age with a plethora of late night white male talk shows, it's, <laughs> you know, a lot to stick out. But this guy, he's he's a British guy, he's a theater guy, he's a Broadway guy, he's a singer, and... He is just adorable, but he has this segment called Carpool Karaoke, and it is so much fun to watch. I don't know if you've seen any of the clips, but the two most re- recent ones were Chris Martin and Adele, and I highly recommend watching at least these two. It's literally just him driving around with these people and singing some of their songs, some of other artists' songs, just chatting. He pokes fun at them. They poke fun at him. And he's a good singer, and he'll break out into harmony in the middle of it, and the artist is just stunned. Um, he broke out into a beautiful harmony with Adele on Hello, and she almost rolled out of the car. She was laughing so hard. I highly recommend it. And Justin Bieber, who I think is the devil incarnate, even he comes off tolerable in, in this segment. The first one, I, I think it was the first one they did was with Jennifer Hudson, and it was fantastic. We're taping this on Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl. He gets the post-Super Bowl slot this year, and they're going to be carpool karaoke with Sir Elton John, so you know I'll be watching that. And he is a Tony winner for One Man, Two Governors, and he will be hosting the Tony Awards this year. And I think not only was he was the baker in the End of the Woods movie, he's become incredibly likable after this show. He's wonderful. He also played uh, Paul Potts in the... Uh small movie one chance about paul potts the uh, winner of britain's got talent he did um you should check it out yeah he was also kira knightley's best friend in the movie begin again uh yeah and he's one of the co-creators of the british show gavin and stacy uh he's also one of the stars of that as well one of the co-stars so he's a legit actor he has hosted shows in saturday night talk shows which are a bigger deal in england but it was still a surprise when he got the late late show that was that was surprising yeah, he's just done a great job, so I, I highly recommend jumping on the James Corden train. 
I'm in California dreaming about who we used to be. It's no secret that the both of us are running out of time. That was amazing. So hello from the All right, mine, um, people who know me, and Jen, I don't think this will become a surprise to you, my show and tell this week is all about Kristen Bell. That's not surprising. No, not surprising at all. Two Kristen Bell things popped into my life this week. The first was a very tiny cameo that she made on an episode of iZombie, which is created by Rob Thomas, who created her breakout role of Veronica Mars. She played herself, but it was just a voice cameo as a an audiobook narrator of an erotic fiction, which I'm not going to play it because that's the whole part. Go watch the episode, but it is everything you could possibly want. But the other thing that she did, her and, man, I really want to not like him since he married Kristen Bell, but her and her incredible husband, Dax Shepard, he's he's fantastic, and I I want to hate him, but I can't. They apparently took a vacation to Africa, like you do in Africa. They did an entire music video lip-syncing to the song Africa by Toto. It is amazing. It is fantastic. If you don't already love Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard, A, what's wrong with you? And B, watch this and you will. I've got a clip from the video. It's just them lip syncing, so it doesn't really do a whole lot. You have to watch it. But if you want to smile, I have some sort of odd uh, uh, affection for this song anyway. But you'll love it, seeing them interact with animals and on the safari. It's it's really fascinating to see what these two really creative people do on vacation. So my my show and tell is is all about the great Kristen Kristen Bell this week. Toto also posted it on their Facebook page. Oh, did they really? (laughs) They were on board. Yeah. And uh, she's delightful. If I can piggyback onto yours, just to promote Dax a little bit, if you get a chance, find his video of him on The Ellen Show confessing his man crush on Brad Pitt. It is the (laughs) the funniest segment that I've ever seen. Well, and then also there's the legendary segment of Kristen crying over a a sloth sloth. on The Ellen Show. So. The, the, that couple has a history with Ellen, but uh, they're, they're great. They're yeah, they're great. I mean, I first saw Dax on 
the first two seasons of Punked, I believe. And then I think he became so famous, you can't have him punking people because people know who he is and love him so much. Then he went on to do some really bad movies with Seth Green, and then he was um, on. Don't tell Wizard me. Wizard of Paddle is a great movie, for this, first of all. Uh, and then he went on to be <laughs> on the NBC show Parenthood, which showed that he's not just a comedian. He is a legitimate dramatic actor and, and deserves to get more roles. And they're great. So we've got James Corden and Kristen Bell, two people that we both love and need to promote more. We need to see more of them. And I'm all for a full Kristen Bell guest spot on iZombie. And it, the line that Rose McIver's character had said, I've always felt a strange connection to her because effectively live more on iZombie is an undead version of Veronica Mars. Yeah, they, they have a lot of fun with that. And I'm for an all Kristen Bell episode of everything. That's true. <laughs> fair point fair point all right jen i think that's a wrap for this week why don't you sign us off i am eponine q on twitter and matt is at bww matt i don't know what's gonna happen with this algorithm thing but you know hopefully we'll uh, still be around on twitter when we figure all that out but you can always find both of us on broadway world writing about all of our current obsessions and until next time always always remember clear eyes full hearts that'd be you Oh, you want me to finish that? Yeah. Well, can't lose. I I was just excited that I, I was waiting for you to finish because it's the first one I've actually... I figured... Not the first it, one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't want to step on your toes. So, yeah, that's good. But Clear Eyes, Full Hearts can't lose. That's... Epic. It's gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start crying if we don't stop here. <laughs> okay. Thanks for checking out this episode of Broadway World's Some Like It Pop podcast. You can find all of our episodes on broadwayworld.com, and you can now get new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So make sure to subscribe, download, listen so often that your friends and family either begin listening as well or disown you completely, and get in touch with Jen and me and let us know what shows and movies you are currently obsessing over. Special thanks to James Marino of Broadway Radio and Patrick Hines of the Theater People podcast. We'll be back in just one week with the first edition of Some Like It Pop's Listopalooza, where Jen and I will countdown and discuss our top 10 favorite plays of all time we've got a preview of that episode coming up in about five seconds so until next time we'll see you around the broadway world number 10 eugene o'neill's morning becomes electra number nine a few good men by aaron sorkin number eight the pillow man by martin mcdonough number seven Art by Yasmina Reza, and number six, Angels in America, The Millennium Approaches, Tony Kushner. Okay, those are all solid, well-known and beloved playwrights. Mine, fairly similar, uh, not the same people, but in a similar vein. Number 10 is The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged by the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Number nine is Arcadia by Tom Stoppard. Number eight is The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Number seven, A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. And number six is The Flick by Annie Baker.